Good morning, good morning. Like I said, I'm Erica Allen. I'm one of the pastors here at Horizon Church, and we have a very exciting opportunity as a church this morning. Um, The Florida Annual Conference, so some folks who have supported this new church and getting off the ground have been really impressed with some of the things that we are doing, and so they put an in place an intern with us this summer and her name is Alex Daly. We are so excited that she's going to be here. One of the major things that she has done this summer is plan and she is going to lead this week an event called Mission Tampa. Um, it's for teenagers in our community to get an opportunity to do exactly what it is we we feel like we are we've been called to and tasked to do here at Horizon, and that is create a place where they can have some authentic community and conversation and an experience to serve others and share the love of God with other people. And so they'll be doing that this week, and Alex is going to be leading that. Um, so she's here this morning. One of the exciting things about being a new church is we get to be a part of helping new leaders come up in the church, and so we are. So excited Alex is going to be here this morning. This is her first time ever giving a message. And so we are really, really, yes, we're really excited about that. I'm just so excited that Horizon is a place that's investing in the next generation, the next leadership in, in, the, in the church, and I'm really excited that I get to be a part of pouring into a, a woman leader here, and I thank you all for the ways you've supported and loved her um, already. So, Alex, go for it. I'm going to get off of you. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Okay, so to start off, uh, I was born here in Tampa, Florida, about 30 minutes away uh, from here in the Lutz area, and so I am so, so happy to spend the summer in my hometown. Uh, For my undergraduate education, I went to Florida Southern College in Lakeland, Florida, and I had a scholarship there to play on the women's soccer team all four years, go Mocs. And there I started off as a biology major because I wanted to be a large animal vet. I had pet ducks and pet chickens, and I really thought that that's the work that I wanted to do. But soon I realized that I could not conquer taking chemistry and being a college athlete and also being in a sorority all at the same time. Uh, And so I decided to switch my major to religion, and I absolutely fell in love with it, and I decided to start the path to become an official pastor. Uh, And so I was drawn to the study of religion after I had some experiences in my life, and I learned about people who tried to answer life's toughest questions, and these people answered their questions from the perspective of their faith in Jesus. And I was so drawn to the way that they would tackle some of these questions, such as, Why is there suffering in the world? And why do really good and faithful Christians suffer? And the most important question that they tried to tackle for me was, how does God respond 
to the terrible suffering that some people experience in this world. And so I was drawn to readings in my undergraduate education that talked about the suffering son of God, which is this God who reveals God's self in Jesus as the one who takes on our sufferings, our burdens, and endures them with us. And, and this was so persuasive to me in so many ways. And so after graduation, I had set my heart on becoming an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, but as one who serves as a professor because I really love the academic study of religion and it's truly changed my life. I personally love a branch of theology, and it's called systematic theology. And like I've explained, I love and am passionate about theology uh, that talks about suffering and why people suffer. And I'm still committed to do uh, this challenging work. So I went to Candler School of Theology, which is at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And I just finished my first year there. It was a long year. Uh, and I am committed, although, to be very honest with you, sometimes I second-guess myself and uh, I try to get out of it, but I am committed to at least six more years of schooling in order to get my Ph.D., so pray for me. Um, <laughs> so when I first started at Candler, I was incredibly nervous. I was a first-year student, and I remember my orientation. It was about a year ago. Uh, this coming August, where I stepped into a chapel with my fellow first-year students, and this orientation was incredibly overwhelming, and it was so deep. And it asked the question, or it asked the students to answer these really hard, difficult, kind of like existential questions. And so I sat in a circle with four other students, and I didn't know them. And we each had to answer one of the questions that they asked. And so I was completely unprepared for these questions because they asked things such as, how do you die a good death? Who are you? And the question that I will be focusing on in today's message is, who is your neighbor? So when I'm sitting in that circle and that question is first asked to me, the very first thing that pops up in my head is, well, my next-door neighbor, Sabrina. And so to explain this, uh, she was my next-door neighbor because growing up, I lived next door to the Ortiz family. And so the Ortiz family had two daughters, the youngest a year younger than I, and the oldest a year older than my sister. My sister is a year and a half older than I am. And so we were best friends accordingly. And even our moms were best friends. And Sabrina and I have known each other since we were born, and we still consider ourselves to be best friends. That's a picture of us. My mom loves that picture. <laughs> so we went to the same school together, the same church together. Our families went to Bush Gardens together. We carpooled together. We did everything together. And every single day after school, Sabrina and I would play outside, and we would play mermaids on our—we uh, would play mermaids in the pool, or we were ice skaters on our razor scooters. That was a favorite, or we played American Girl dolls slash Polly Pockets until we were at least 13 years old. <laughs> but you know, we were very close, but we also fought like sisters, because Sabrina and I were not always on the same page, and we did not always see eye to eye. 
So like I explained earlier, I played sports all throughout my youth. And as my friends and family know, I'm very competitive. (laughs) And so Sabrina and I would sometimes play volleyball in her garage. And if I won, and I usually did, and I probably bragged about it, she would get upset with me. And she would probably go home. Or we would play this car racing game on her TV, and I would never let her win. So what she would do is she would try to trick me. She would pause the game, say we weren't going to play anymore. Then I would probably go off somewhere in her house to play something else. She would come back to the TV, resume the game so that she would win because I wasn't playing. So then I would get upset, and I would go home. And so the funniest part about this back and forth process we participated in was that once one of us decided to go home, it usually took like 30 to 45 minutes until one of us called the other's house and said, you want to try again? (laughs) You want to play again? And so we still laugh about this with our parents today. And we really talk about how thankful we are for our childhood where we played outside almost every single day. We got dirty and we got in fights and we really used our imagination. And so my favorite days in the world that I still remember are when I would come home after a day of school and I would see my mom and Sabrina's mom talking outside by the mailbox and then my sister and Sabrina's sister and they were playing volleyball and I would look over and I would see that Sabrina was anxiously awaiting for me to come and play with her. We were truly great neighbors and we absolutely loved our neighborhood friends. Sabrina and I We reminisce on these days a lot because we fear that these kinds of neighbor relationships just don't happen anymore. See, when I was doing research for this sermon, uh, I saw that the City Observatory Report claims that only one in five or 20% of Americans spent time regularly with the people who live next to them. And one in three or a third of Americans claim to have never interacted with their neighbors. So these statistics contrast statistics from four decades ago where one in three Americans hung out with their neighbors at least twice a week. People used to actually live in closer proximity with one another, and so people couldn't avoid one another just for spatial reasons. But now, however, we see that people are moving out to the suburbs to gain privacy. They put a picket fence around their house. They put gates up. And all of this limits their contact with other people. Even community spaces where people would go to socialize with one another, like pools, gyms, community centers, those have gone private as well. And so these statistics show that Americans are growing further and further and further apart from one another. But Americans are growing particularly farther away from people who may think differently from them or from people that are in different social classes from them. And so my fear is this when I saw these statistics. If Americans are not interacting with their neighbors that may look and think and live in the same social class as them, then how are we interacting with those on the margins, those that that Jesus directs his ministry towards? And so As I was planning this sermon and I was thinking about reruns as we've been going over for the past couple weeks, I thought, where do I see reruns in Christianity 
And it occurred to me that in the biblical text, there are reruns of Jesus demanding for his followers to care for the sojourner, your neighbor, the wanderer, the most vulnerable ones in your midst. Because, see, ancient Israel was a kinship-based society, and so that meant that one's social status was dependent on their kinship group, the people that they were in relationship with that existed around them. This included family members. And so folks lived and moved and occupied a certain kinship group. Studying this, I read an article by Rolf Jacobson, and he notes that kinship groups were not just necessary for one's purpose or their meaning, but it was necessary for their survival. So if you were sick, your kinship group took care of you. Or if you could not gather your food, this was an agrarian society, then your kinship group would also do that for you. So those who did not have a kinship group were considered gares. This is a Hebrew word which could refer to orphans, widows, immigrants, or those who had been separated from their kinship group, maybe because of war or because of famine. And so without a kinship group, the Gare had no one to fight for them when they needed it the most. When they were hungry, when they were sick, when they could not work, they had no support group. And they had to fight harder than most to survive because they may have been doing life alone. We see this with Ruth and Naomi. This is an example because they lost their husbands, they lost their son, and they had no kinship group. And so they too were considered gayers. They were vulnerable in, they, in their society because they lived in a patriarchal society and they did not have men who could own land for them and they did not have men that could work for them or provide money for them. So how does God respond to the wanderer, the alien, the vulnerable, the immigrant? How does God respond to those that depend on the grace of God and the grace of others to survive? The Bible is clear on this and repeats itself on this issue. Exodus 22:21 up here is explicit in saying, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. See, the Israelites knew what it was like to once be strangers in a strange land, to be vulnerable in the midst of the Egyptians. The Israelites are commanded to obey the golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated, or in this case, treat others as you would have wanted to be treated in the land of Egypt. Do not hurt these people, do not misuse them, do not take advantage of them, because you too remember what that treatment is like, and yet God led you out of oppression into liberation. Exodus 23, 9 repeats this almost exactly saying, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 10, which is also above, 18 through 19 says, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food, giving them clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. And so God demands from God's followers that those on the margins, those who are not protected, they must be taken care of. Not only does God demand and not suggest 
that the foreigner or the wanderer must be taken care of, but God protects these people. God defends them. God provides them with food and with clothing. And so as we can see, this is not simply a one-time statement that is made throughout the biblical text. Because we see this in both the Old and the New Testaments, the command to provide for those who may be unable due to social pressures to supply for themselves. And so over and over and over again, we see that God is telling others, God's followers, to fulfill the command to help others seek liberation. So my question is this. How are we as a, as a church helping the gear in our midst? How are we feeding the hungry? How are you clothing the naked? How are we loving our foreigners, the wanderers? How are we embracing them, the most vulnerable, and surrounding them with a kinship group? Psalm 52 states, God is taking God's place on the divine council. In the midst of the gods, God holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality? To the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So, Horizon, my question to you is who is our neighbor? Because if we are not interacting with the people we live next to, then how are we interacting with the people who are far different from us? Who is the neighbor? Can you think of one in your life? that you may have been neglecting, that you may need to catch up with? Is it someone who has different abilities than you do? Is it someone who doesn't have a house like you do? Is it someone who doesn't even have a house at all? Is it someone who loves differently than you do? Is it someone who speaks differently from you? Is it someone who doesn't come from the same country as you? Is it someone who is new at work or the child that sits alone at the lunch table? Is it your neighbor of a different religion? Ask yourself, who is your neighbor, as I ask myself seriously, who my neighbor is as well. How would we treat our neighbors differently if we truly believed that the image of God is held within every person that we come across? How would our treatment of others change if we start to see the all-encompassing love of God? A God who has decided to be with us in human form in the person of Jesus, and a God who has taken on our burdens, and our sufferings. Because if we take this message seriously, and if we are compelled by the statement that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, then we can do better, because we can always do better. And so we, we must radically open ourselves up to our neighbors. We must embrace our neighbors and provide for them the best that we can. Because there are wanderers, sojourners, Folks who are vulnerable, who are looking for liberation. Because the work of the church is to work alongside of people, particularly those who are struggling, and encounter together the life-changing, liberating work of God. During my time here, I've seen that our church is a very, very generous one. And with Horizons, generosity and commitment to service and authentic community, like Erica has explained, we have 12 youth and Horizon volunteers who are signed up to learn about who their neighbors really are. These youth have committed themselves to a week of service where they will experience the abundant love of God that simply does not deny a single human being. 
These youth will be reading with BT Washington students, learning about what it may be like to have a disability at Pyramid Inc., serving with those who are experiencing homelessness at Metropolitan Ministries, doing housework for those who are unable, and visiting with folks of the older generation who may need to simply see a smile. And so these, these youth will be serving and will be served by a neighbor that they probably have never met before and they may have never considered. But this, this is the power of coming together with your neighbors because humans are better together, better when we step, step alongside one another despite our differences, despite our vulnerabilities, and work together towards restoration and reconciliation. And see, when the world plays the rerun over and over again that we can't all get along, there is the kingdom that God promises, a hopeful reality that God promises to bring where there is enough food, enough resources, enough love for all. And so this new story, this story of justice and resolution, God wants to write in our own lives and in the lives of others. Because the kingdom of God breaks through, friends, when we align ourselves with our neighbors both locally and globally and fight for one another. This is good and this is holy work that I know that Horizon Church has been doing and I believe that Horizon will continue to do. The last verse that I want to read comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 34 through 40. It says, as it is above, Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And so the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you naked or gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. And so here we see that God rejoices with those who serve the hungry, the poor, the outcast, the immigrant. The folks who do this hard and holy work we can see here are granted entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In this parable, God explicitly aligns God's self with the least of these because God has aligned God's self with our most vulnerable neighbor. When we treat our neighbors well, when we do not misuse them, when we embrace them openly and fully, we are opening ourselves up to love and relationships, but most importantly, we are opening ourselves up to the revelation of who God is. And so God's challenge to us is to stop the rerun that there isn't enough time to catch up with your neighbor and start living the new story that God has for you and for us. Because the challenge for us all this week is to reach out to a neighbor that you haven't caught up with in a while. Both the one that you are comfortable with and one that maybe you're not so comfortable with. This may be our neighbor next door and a man experiencing homelessness that you may see on the side of the road. This may be your boss that you sometimes can't stand and the distant relative that you know is struggling. It may be committing to making PB&J sandwiches with Horizon for the people who don't know where their next meal is coming from. It may be donating your time and your money to organizations that are fighting for good and for wholesome causes. So the question is, who is our neighbor the one that we have not caught up with in a while, and how can we serve them better?
this is hard, and this is uncomfortable work, because I will be very honest about that. And there are times when I have failed, and I definitely continue to fail at loving my neighbors well, both those that are like me and those that are not like me. But my hope for you all and for myself is that we engage in this hard work, and if it gets uncomfortable, and if it gets too hard, too frustrating, that you do what Sabrina and I did. You take maybe 30 to 45 seconds, or 30 to 45 minutes, you go home, and then you try again. Because that is what neighbors do. Would you all pray with me this morning? God, we come to you with humble and thankful hearts this morning. We are thankful for being in community with our neighbors. We're thankful for you and who you are, how you've revealed yourself in the person of Jesus. And we ask for you to open our eyes and our hearts up to both old and new neighbors. May we move toward together to bring your promised kingdom here on earth. Amen.